Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we have a conversation about electric vehicles. And along the way, we talk about Chevy Volts, tax jolts, and driving dolts. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 114, Driven Electrons, August 4th, 2016. So, Carmen, what's the mass of an electron? Oh, man, I thought you were going to open with, you know, electrons have mass, so I could use the whole, I didn't even know they were Catholic joke. We got to start this podcast over, man. <laughs> oh, I love that. I'm sorry. We, we missed the beat, but it's cool. It's like, it's just live. We got to roll with it. Okay, let's All go. Right. So, uh, by my estimations, I think it's like, you know, nine times 10 to the minus 30, 31 kilograms, something like that. Pretty small, huh? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, and so when we, uh, you know, we look at internal combustion engines, I can see, you know, these pistons that have mass and we have explosions and horsepower. But I don't get the whole bit about electric cars, you know, these teeny tiny little electrons, they can move a car. Uh, yeah, man. Newton's third law. Every action is an equal and opposite reaction. If you just fire off a lot of electrons out of the back of the car, they'll push the car forward. Wow. Yeah. Is that how it's done? Uh, yeah, trust me. I'm an electrical engineer. I have a master's degree in it. Wow. Yeah, that was uh, huh. Electric Cars 102, 202. I think it was a third-year class, yeah. I thought they fired the electrons out of the front of the car and the negative charge pulls them along. Oh, yeah, because if you shoot them out of the front of the car, then the car is positive, so it'll want to go towards the electrons. Yeah, you've got to shoot positrons out the back. No, 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 wait, no, because it goes positive to negative. So wouldn't you have to shoot them out the back? Because otherwise the car would be in reverse. I do know that if you shoot positrons out the back, you're going to irradiate everyone behind you, mm-hmm. which would – I don't know. I don't know. It depends <laughs> on who – if you're going to get rear-ended, maybe that's a good thing. It's true. But store, storing the electrons <laughs> is really the tricky part. I mean you can't tip the bucket over while you're, while you're driving or you kind of just mm-hmm. sputter to a stop. Mm. Exactly. The positrons tend to annihilate. Yeah. Yeah. It's no good for anyone. No. And so how does this work with the Earth's magnetic field? Do you – as you start to drive, are you – do you always end up going north? No. No, no. I mean, it's the car because it's, you know, a lot of wires. It also mm-hmm. has its own magnetic field because of all the electrons flying around. So it's like the compass needle uh-huh. when you put a magnet on it. It goes whatever direction you yeah. want. This isn't wow. sailing, Jeff. Yeah. What do you think we are, pigeons? <laughs> we know how to navigate, not by the electromagnetic field of the Earth. We do it ourselves. <laughs> wow. Well, so this this is all... Uh, Amazing to me. I mean, I, I kind of have the idea that uh, I've seen little, like little motors work mm-hmm. with batteries, and mm-hmm. I get the idea that that somehow it must be the same thing with the cars. No, but no. Uh, There's a reason that comes in little kids' hobbyist kits, Jeff. Doesn't, it's no good. There's no practical applications of motors. No? no? It's all just science experiments. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Trust me. Trust me. I'm being recruited by Tesla as we speak. I'm in talks. So if they want some of these ideas, they got brewing, percolating. Not after the electron comment, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll just be VP then. It's fine. I won't be on the sale <laughs> on the production floor. 
Yeah. yeah. Mover and shaker. A big, big picture kind of guy. Yeah. Now, I do not have an electric car. I have a neighbor with an electric car, but I, I don't have one myself. Do, uh, do any of you guys have an electric car? With caveats, I do. <laughs> hmm. What's okay. a ca- what caveats well, do you do or you don't? Well, before we get into that, what does your neighbor have? Uh, they actually has a hybrid. Okay. It's a Prius. Okay. So I am the proud owner of a Chevy Volt, which uh, when we get to a comparison of um, EVs, uh, you'll see why that potentially fits in in a weird spot. But it mm-hmm. also has a gasoline engine. Okay. Which for electric vehicle purists is a bit of a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are like the same people that say it's not a, a guitar amp if it doesn't have tubes in it, because you know they don't matter then. Yes, ah. yes. If oh, it has, yeah, okay. if it has, <laughs> if it has a gas motor in it, it is not an electric vehicle. But okay. the, the good engineers, I heard a wonderful uh, interview with a General Motors engineer. Mm-hmm. The vehicle will not move without the electric motors. So unlike a Prius, if if because the gas motor is in the is the primary action in the drivetrain. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will move without the electric motor, whereas uh, the complex planetary gear system that the uh, I believe it's a planetary gear system. Jeff can look it up and then correct me. The electric motors are required to make it move, and if you always keep your driving within the battery range, the motor will virtually never turn on. So you're not required to run the motor in any way, shape, or form. Unless it gets really cold, which it never does in Minnesota. Never. So that's why there's caveats. Because if I say it's an electric vehicle outright, I'm sure there'll be somebody in our comment thread complaining. All right. And and so, but back me up. So you you can make it operate without ever using the gas engine. But the gas engine is there for under what circumstances do you run the gas engine? So here's where it gets weird. The way it was initially pitched to people is that you, uh, as opposed to previous hybrid systems where you just have an electric assist and you have mm-hmm. and you have energy recovery systems. So as you start to brake, instead of just dissipating all that energy as friction in the uh, disc brakes, mm-hmm. you... Uh, use a quasi-electric motor uh, generator system to pull that en- to uh, pull that energy and store it in the battery that can then be reused as you take off. The Volt works in the cartoon bubble initially as an electric motor with a gas generator. Okay. So it runs entirely off of batteries, and then when you deplete the batteries, the gas generator runs and charges up the batteries. What GM's engineers found is that for certain scenarios, it's best to actually mechanically tie the motor in in addition to having it behave like a generator. So when you say tied the motor in, you're saying drive, tie it into the drivetrain? Yeah. So that's where, and again, I'm not a mechanical engineer and... I maybe should have talked to you ahead of time so that you could explain this to me exactly how this works. <laughs> um, and I guess this is where you get to that elongated asterisk I gave. Yeah. If, as he explained it, 
the gearing system on the Chevy Volt will not work if the electric motors are not applying torque to the system. Okay. Uh, they will simply be charging the battery. And that's the way they work in almost all scenarios. But the gas motor has the option. I don't know if it's like a clutched option where it has to clutch into the system or if it's always connected. Mm-hmm. Uh, the gas motor during like uh, peak acceleration can actually add mechanical energy to the drivetrain. But for the most part, it doesn't. And that's why I would say it's, it probably is a straightforward electric vehicle. Okay. Yeah. Before, before you got into the whole discussion of how uh, the, the, the gasoline engine is able to tie into the drivetrain, that sounds an awful lot like how a modern diesel locomotive works. Except mm-hmm. it's diesel instead. It, it runs, and you skip the batteries, it, it runs a, an electric motor. It is actually the same way. I think it would be easier for them to explain if they hadn't gotten mechanically clever. Um, but in terms of day-to-day operation, uh, you know, I charge my vehicle overnight. I get a, an X amount of range. I draw, you know, I have moved recently. So depending upon where I lived relative to where I have to work during my commute, you know, I might not fill up my gas tank for three or four months. Hmm. But that depends on how far I drive on a day-to-day basis. Whereas I've moved a little bit further away from my office now, and I'm getting about a thousand miles per tank at this point. Uh, I've got like a, it's like an eight gallon tank. That's pretty good. <laughs> Not bad. Yeah. So, so how does the cost for the, the, uh, I assume you, you have some outlet in your garage that you're plugging into. Mm-hmm. And so how does the cost, the electric electricity cost compared to the your gas cost? Oh, man, I should have thought you were going to ask that question because I used to have a good answer when I first bought the car. Um, (laughs) I worked it out to the fact that it cost about as much as a pop for me to charge the car every night. It was about – when gas was really expensive, it was a serious cost saver. I bet you we're back down to the break-even point. Okay. You know – but I would also argue that anyone who's buying an electric car at this point is not buying it for cost-saving purposes. Uh, that's something I should state right at the top. I bought my car because I wanted to support – I wanted to be an early adopter and support a technology that I believe needs to be uh, supported. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to wait until it was common because if, if – I don't know purely from a uh, uh, political and emotional point of view, if nobody steps in and buys cutting-edge technology when it comes out, it'll never, you know, it'll never become mainstream. Right. Which also Mm -hmm. means that you risk the fact that you will own a Laserdisc at the end of the day. (laughs) What's wrong with Laserdisc? Or a Betamax. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with it. Just can't find any of them these days. So, so uh, I don't uh, – when gas was $4 or, you know, or more depending upon where you lived a gallon, mm-hmm. I think you could have made the case with the tax rebates that you were saving money. But I don't think you can right now. Sure. Well, and but, a, a uh, big element of that is going to depend on what your electric costs are like um, and those are wildly mm-hmm. regionally variable. 
Yeah, I'd like to see it say Hawaii would be a horrible decision, but I don't know what their gasoline costs are. I know their electricity costs are really high. Um, but it, it, and again, it gets tricky based on what your utilization of the gas motor is with the Volt, you know, as opposed to a Tesla or a, a Nissan Leaf. But um, would you guys like to know a little bit of the history of electric vehicles? I would love to. Sounds good. For the record, I don't have an electric car. So our listeners aren't left with a cliffhanger. Am I the only one here with an electric or a hybrid? Yes. Yes. I believe you are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Honda doesn't sell the electric version of the Fit in the U.S., I don't believe. Not that I don't think I could have afforded that back when I was looking for a new car anyways. Yeah. Um, so I was surprised to find out that the – and I will admit this before we started talking or planning for this episode. I hadn't even looked up the history of electric vehicle. I was surprised to find out that pretty much EVs predated. It depends on who you claim as or who you credit as having invented the electric vehicle mm-hmm. because they're pretty much as soon as the electric motor or primitive electric motors were invented back in the 1830s, 40s, 1830s or 1820s, sorry. They were models, but they were still electric vehicles for what it's worth. Um, and some people farted around with electric lo- locomotives in the 1830s and 18 up until the 1840s. Um, mm-hmm. But it, none of it really became practical until pe- until the lead acid battery was invented. Um, and the very first quasi-production electric vehicle went for sale in 1884 uh, and was invented by Thomas Parker in the UK uh, who used his own personal flavor of lead acid battery. Um, So what surprised me was that uh, uh, electric vehicles actually outpaced gas motors or gas vehicles, gas internal combustion engines even until the turn of the century. Which I would – go ahead. When you, you say outpaced, you mean they they would drive faster? No, as a percentage of the market. And they outsold? Yes. Wow. <laughs> Not bad. Uh, according to the highly reliable Wikipedia in 1900, uh, 40% of the, of the vehicles in the U.S. were steam. Uh, these are you know, car equivalent vehicles. 38% were electric and 22% were gasoline. So, um, so before uh, that is before I think most of the United States was uh, electrified. Uh, how are these electric cars getting charged? Well, no, that's actually a huge point. Is when you look back at you know why did why did gasoline vehicles take off as opposed to electric vehicles, et cetera, et cetera, versus steam? Mm-hmm. You know, um, you're right. America was being electrified. Uh, and wasn't electrified universally in, you know, 1900. Mm-hmm. So, yes, you had to be located in an urban area that happened to have electricity in order for this to be useful. It's like the Nissan Leafs of the day. Exactly. It also wasn't terribly common for people to own their own vehicles. And you, I think you might want to think about this more along the lines of taxi services. Uh you know, and people even using them for novelty purposes. Sure. Or the super rich who would have you know, electrified houses and live in electrified neighborhoods might have access to this kind of stuff. Okay. Um, 
So the same way we complain about gentrification, did they complain about electrification back in the day? We'll have to talk to Mr. Edison at Westinghouse about that. <laughs> Actually, we should do an episode just about the grid because I think we initially thought about doing it along those lines. But mm-hmm. uh, um, I'm glad this just became about electric vehicles yeah. as opposed to the grid because that's an awesome story. All right. Well, <laughs> we'll do the grid sometime in the future. Yes. Uh, it, it appears that electric lost out primarily because of the – relative inaccessibility of electricity. So, I mean, if you want to drive out into the country, the country in this country was the last place to get electrified. In fact, when was the Rural Electrification Act, Jeff? Was it a FDR uh, project? I think so. Let me look up. Tennessee Valley Authority. I'm pretty sure it wasn't until the 30s that there was a concerted effort to make you know electricity ubiquitous. Yeah, it was enacted in 1936. Yeah. Um, so you, conceivably you're driving outside of New York city to nowhere to charge and gasoline was very easy to store, uh, uh, relative to setting up generation assets where nobody was willing to pay for it. Mm-hmm. So one thing I think to keep in context that the, the national highway system was also not real widespread at this point in time. Um, that didn't happen to Eisenhower. That was like in the fifties to the fifties. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the, uh, interstate bill was in, in, uh, 1956 and it was, uh, 1919 when Eisenhower traveled across the country in a, a, a motorcade and had a horrible, horrible time doing it. So <laughs> travel by car was not a commonplace thing anyway. It was very difficult to do no matter if you had gasoline or electric. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not to make this super U.S. centric for our non-U.S. listeners, but I mean, it's something that we kind of think of as a a whole problem. You know, the the roads really showed up when the vehicles showed up, mm-hmm. and you know, I remember this really great uh, was like a nineteen thirty six or thirty seven story about I think it was a Time Life or a, a Time Magazine. I don't know if those were separate publications at the time. Story about the U.S. and why do we even need a standing army? Mm-hmm. Because we're so – the fact that you couldn't get from point A to point B in quick fashion made us virtually uninvadable. And they they had this map of the U.S. written from uh, – and it was written before they thought the Japanese would invade or even attack Pearl Harbor. But, you know, of like – pointing out sections of the country where people still use donkeys and horses as a means of transportation. Mm-hmm. It's There's no roads going to, say, Omaha. There's only, like, a train and, you know, boat. Mm-hmm. You know, it's <laughs> a steamliner. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, so electric vehicles died, I would say, a quick death as soon as gasoline became plentiful, which is a bit sad because, you know, maybe – if gas hadn't been plentiful and, you know, electrification went the way it did, EVs might have been the only option or might have prospered earlier and uh, more uh, been more prolific than they really were. Than they, they have been for, I'd say, the past 100 years. I should also state that I'm going to ignore all of the attempts at doing electric vehicles in the 50s, 60s, and 70s because 
I don't think those were terribly credible. There were there were some nice experimental vehicles, but I don't think there were any legitimate attempts to commercialize a, an electric vehicle by a major manufacturer in the U.S. during that time or anywhere in the yeah. world for that matter. Well, I, and I would think the co- the cost of gasoline was so cheap that there was little exactly uh, economic incentive to do that. Well, and throughout that time, there was a lot of experimentation with cars, such mm-hmm. as cars that had wings that theoretically could fly. Yes, maybe. Um, so well, and, and GM's nuclear powered cars, or was it Chrysler who did that insanity? Yeah. So would that actually be an electric car? No, it would be a nuclear car. Might be a nuclear electric hybrid. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, so if we ignore all of the oddities that happened in the mean, you know, that weird period where gas dominated and still dominates, I guess, uh, the electric vehicle really picked up in the early 90s when several of the uh, major manufacturers made attempts at. I guess casual before they sued California, I should say, uh, meeting California's emissions requirements. Um, mm-hmm. So the most prolific of these was the General Motors EV1 and probably the Honda EV Plus. Uh, most people probably haven't heard of the latter, but the EV1 was made famous by the movie uh, uh, Who Killed the Electric Car, which is – it, it unfortunately it's become the f- uh, fodder for conspiracy theories um, what happened was General Motors launched in at least a token electric vehicle project in California leased about a thousand cars uh, people evidently really liked the car I'm pretty sure it was a nickel metal hydride battery kind of a compact-ish four, uh, four-door car Mm-hmm. No, two doors. I was totally wrong about that. But they did it as a closed-end lease, meaning at the end of the lease, you could not own the car. You had to turn it back into General Motors. Right. They then promptly took all the cars out and shredded them and destroyed them, uh, leading many people to believe that the electric vehicle was destroyed because people liked it too much and GM is in the back pocket of big oil and Nobody wants electric vehicle, blah, blah, blah. Uh, sorry, no big power people want the electric vehicle. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, I don't know. I, I'm of two minds about that. I think there's a practicality that we can all admit as engineers that it's it's not about, if, if GM believed they could make money making electric vehicles, they would make electric vehicles. Yep. It, it probably had nothing to do with, you know, the chairman of Exxon calling up the chairman of General Motors and saying, stop making those electric vehicles. They're cutting into our margins. Um, and also, we can probably relate to a business that put a thousand prototypes into the field and doesn't want to support a thousand prototypes indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's similar to. Amazon or uh, Google killing off that home automation device that they sold because it was it didn't sell enough and it didn't justify having the engineering support to you know man the software updates that needed to happen. So 
electric vehicles were pretty much dead in the 90s until the Tesla Roadster, I would say, with a brief stopover in the Prius. Um, the Prius, right. while not an electric vehicle, still managed to sell, I guess, an alternative drivetrain at high enough numbers that it caused the major manufacturers to take notice. Mm-hmm. Um, and could, I guess, justify to investors that there might be a market for eco-friendly vehicles uh, that was being untapped. So, Right. And so, and so was the Prius the first one to really take off? I mean, you're right. I mean, they had the GM had a couple uh, of the Honda, the Honda Insight was, I think, a pretty decent seller or a, a, a decent success. It, I think that was the first to market. But I think, mm-hmm. you know, I think that was the Diamond Rio MP3 player to the iPod. I, I don't think anything okay. sold any anywhere as close to the uh, Prius in terms of uh, hybrid vehicles. Okay. Actually, I'll say that as a fact. Nothing sold anywhere anywhere close to the <laughs> Priuses in terms of in terms of the hybrid vehicle market in the early two thousands. Okay. So I guess that brings us to modern times, which is conceivably kicked off by the Tesla Roadster, which would be the first quasi mass marketed uh electric vehicle particularly the first one to use lithium ion as far as i'm aware i'm pretty sure the first toyota priuses all use nickel metal hydride but i want to double check that Mm -hmm. and so when you say the the tesla was the first electric vehicle you're saying a pure electric vehicle not a hybrid yes no gas engine um and also a significant range Significant in terms of what kind of numbers? 100 miles? 1,000 miles? That's a good question. Uh, when I say significant and I say the first, uh, it should be noted that a car like uh, um, looking for the range on the GM EV1, I think it's on the order of 80 to 90 miles, but uh, the Gen 1s were 70 to 100 miles, whereas the modern Teslas are on the order of 200 to 250 miles per charge. Even on the Roadster, the initial one? Uh, the Tesla Roadster, I think, was slightly less than that. And for confirmation, it was 244 miles, at least okay. according to the EBA est- uh, EPA estimate. So there's that's, that's plenty. If you're, if you're going to and from work, that's great. It's, it's not so good if you're driving uh, cross-country from New York to Los Angeles. No, especially not as an early adopter when there were no chargers anywhere. <laughs> well, exactly. You know, I mean, 250 miles is enough to take away what's considered to be range anxiety. Mm-hmm. You know, that notion of, oh, I've really got to plan my route so that uh, I don't deplete my batteries and I don't end up you know, stuck on the side of the road calling a tow truck. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, so I have a pretty healthy drive every day. It's, uh, it, I know exactly, it's 142 miles round trip every day. Jeez. Damn. Um, <laughs> so, but, the, but uh, as long as I had a charge at the end of every day, I'd be fine with, with uh, a Tesla, I guess, then. Yeah, and I'm sure your university's probably got Electric vehicle charging too, right? They may. I I haven't looked into it. 
Yeah, and and you know, there's there's options. So uh, there's there's an app I use called ChargePoint, which I used it a lot more when I first owned the vehicle. Um, it's an app that shows you where all of the chargers are around town, and mm-hmm. most most urban areas have a significant number of uh, either pay or uh, complimentary charging facilities. You know, some grocery stores in my area, um, you know, the high-end grocery stores in our area will have complimentary charging or have, you know, paper kilowatt hour charging. <laughs> so does that work like the little air machines where you drop in four quarters and you get air for four minutes? Uh, unfortunately, it's actually, and I say unfortunately, it's more sophisticated than that because it doesn't always work. Uh, you, <laughs> okay. you roll up to the device and use the app to basically say, I'm at the device, you know, here's my credit card. You know, you have an account with ChargePoint. And uh, it once you say you're there, it unlocks one of the chargers. And as soon as you plug it into your vehicle, it starts charging both you and the car. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> right. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's only problematic when sometimes the GPS on the phones isn't good enough mm-hmm. to... This happens in one location that's always on my commute home, and it happens to be a grocery store, so I'm often stopping there, where it's almost like it's it's coded into the app that the charging station is in the wrong spot, and it won't activate the charger unless you're within 50 feet. So you have to find this you know mystical sweet spot between where it thinks the chargers are and where they actually are. In order to in order to get the app to, to allow trigger. you to yeah exactly. So one of the issues I'm sure that had to be worked out at least I'm thinking one of the first things is uh, when you pull up to a gas station, all of the cars have basically uh, accommodation for the same size uh, nozzle. Uh, my recollection is when we went to unleaded gas, those nozzles took for a while took a different size nozzle than the leaded gas, and so there was a little period of of trying to make sure you had the right nozzle going to the right car because they're trying to prevent you from putting the wrong type of gas into the car. But but at this point, do all the electric car manufacturers or the hybrids are they all using the same interface for charging your vehicle? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> okay. Um. Yes and no. So there is a standard plug that's used on the Chevy Volt. I'm on the Nissan Leaf, and I'm pretty sure other small utility electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe it's called the SAEJ 1772. I'll take your word for it. Well, I'm kind of learning on the fly here. I'd never thought to look up the connector type. It's like looking up NEMA plugs. You only do it once and then you never remember it. <laughs> um, but Tesla uses something totally different. Uh, that particular plug is not suitable for rapid charging scenarios. So I, I believe the Nissan Leaf has options for both. I believe they have both charging points. At least some models have both charging points, have a uh, high voltage, high current option and the, and the more standard option. Mm -hmm. But uh, my car does not. 
it only has a standard lower current, lower voltage option. doesn't have the fast charge option. Mm-hmm. In fact, I want to say it can only accept about 12 kilowatts at any one moment. Okay. I got to think about that for a second. Yeah, I think it'll... No, it's going to be higher than that. I have to scale it for voltage. It's 12 kilowatts at 120 volts. Okay. It's slightly higher at 240. How long does it take to charge your vehicle? Are we, are, is it a matter of minutes? Is it an hour? Is it hours, plural? So uh, it depends on the vehicle. It depends on the charging point. Um, so in my in my day-to-day usage, I do not have, and I guess we can get into at some point, the the charger levels. Uh, there are standard U.S. electric vehicle charging levels, level one, level two, and level three. Uh, I only use a level one. I have flirted with and I have attempted to, in my new house, get a level two charger installed. Um, but it's a bit expensive and I've got to justify it in the midst of all the other projects I want to do. Right. So so what's the difference between level one, level two, and level three? So level one is going to be 120 volts of VAC in the U.S., you know, probably 230 in Europe, uh, a standard outlet. Okay. So one thing that's interesting is that the, the Chevy Volt, when it first came out, has an uh, – well, now it has an 8-amp and a 12-amp option. So when you – when you roll in your garage at night and plug in your vehicle, it defaults to an 8-amp charging option. Mm-hmm. If you want to, you can go into a menu and then basically select the 12-amp charging option. Clearly, it's going to be done faster. What's what's really funny is it initially had – I don't even know if it had the 8-amp option in the very first model year. Um, mm-hmm. It only had the 12-amp. I'm pretty sure there was a fire or two. Because you're making the assumption that given the crappy wiring that your average, you know, the statistical crappy wiring that may be out there, you know, you're at the very limits of what a standard NEMA 15 plug is going to do. You know, most outlets are only rated to 15 to 20 amps depending upon the type. And you also then have to deal with the circuit between the outlet and the breaker. And I'm sure GM didn't like or was trying to avoid any bad press of people plugging their volts in and burning their houses down. That is kind of bad press. Yeah. So my vehicle with the eight amp with the eight amp option will charge in about fourteen ish hours. Um, but with the twelve, so with the twelve in my previous house when I had a higher capacity circuit, the twelve amp. Charging mode, I would wake up every morning with a charged car. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the 8-amp charging mode that I'm running at right now, because I don't quite trust the circuit, I wake up with about a 95 to 98% charge. Okay. With a 240-volt level 2 charger, I would charge my car in about four hours. Okay. So so these port- so these places where you can pull up at, at say, the... Uh- uh, grocery store. How practical is that if somebody has to sit there for hours in order to charge up a vehicle? Well, it depends on what it is. So that gets us to the level three charger, right? Okay, Which, sure. you know, 
the mo- the most prolific electric vehicle in the U.S. is the Tesla Model S. Um, Tesla has distributed supercharging stations all across the U.S., I believe, at their own dime, if not at the federal taxpayer's dime. And the supercharger is a high-voltage DC, high-current connection using the it's, – it's, I, I, I don't know if it's a proprietary connection, but they claim that the Model S will uh, replenish half of its battery in 20 minutes. Mm, okay. That's, that's a pretty big battery too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, so you've basically added about 125 miles of range in 20 minutes. So when you're just running around town grocery shopping or going to the mall, that 20 minutes will get you back home for sure. Whereas yes. if you were road tripping across country, you would need a little bit more time. Well, and Tesla has, in my mind, gone out of their way because, uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's ever going to be practical to drive across the country with an electric vehicle, at least with the current technology. You know, the people have demonstrated, even Tesla has demonstrated options where you could have uh, like battery swapping systems. Oh, I've read about that. Yeah. Yeah. Where you basically drive a, you drive your electric vehicle over a, almost like the kind of uh, pit trap, like you would have to change the oil of a car and the battery basically gets automatically screwed out of the bottom of the vehicle. And then a new, a new fully charged one basically is slapped into place and screwed in by robots. I mean, I think they (laughs) did that for a press release and it was, I, I don't know how practical that is. And, you know, even from like the, the warranty point of view, since the warranty and the battery is such a huge deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, if you get swapped out for some five-year-old thing that still passes spec but is at yeah. 80% capacity when your you know, brand-new Tesla has a, obviously a new battery in it. Exactly. So, But Tesla has – in the start of this, I mean, I was getting to the point that Tesla has at their own expense laid out uh, charging stations across the country that you could conceivably drive from like L.A. to New York – Electric and people have done that. I don't know anyone who would practically do it though. Mm-hmm. You know, why not hop? You know, frankly, who drives coast to coast other than for pleasure at this point? Why not hop on a plane? So, you know, I, we're not at a point where I would say even the most advanced and expensive electric vehicles would compete head to head in terms of the use case scenarios, but are pretty close. So, and the supercharger, yeah, you go into the grocery store if there's a supercharger there, you come out, usually it's 10 to 15 minutes later, 20 minutes later, you've got sure. half a charge. Okay. Or, or if you're on your road trip, you stop, you grab something to eat and... Yeah, but you think about that. How many times do you do that every 250 miles? Yeah, I suppose it's a lot more than 250 miles. Yeah, on my if I drive straight from Raleigh to my hometown of Buffalo, if I do it in one shot and I don't stop overnight to see a friend, I'll take maybe one 25-minute stop in there. Otherwise, I'm in, out in less than 10 minutes if I can. Exactly. You know, and that's a full ch- – effectively with a, with a gas engine, that's yeah. a full charge in 10 minutes. It's not half charge either. Yeah, and not even 10 minutes if you're, you know, because some of that's going in to get a coffee, use the bathroom, whatever. Exactly. Yeah, the time actually charging, quote unquote, is much, much less. But I would also argue that that's that's an edge case for most people. 
Yeah, yeah, I do that once a year. Exactly. And in scenarios like that, conceivably, you and I know people who do this, they'd rent a car because they don't want to put those that kind of mileage on the cars that they use to their daily commute or, you know, if they have a lease, they don't necessarily want to put two or 300 miles on it just going to yeah. visit their parents. Yeah. Well, I mean, my so it was 700, 750 miles back to Buffalo straight. Um, yeah, that I only do once a year, but I frequently take a lot of road trips, whether it's to the mountains or, you know, within a four or five hour circle around Raleigh. Um, I think I might break even if I did the math. I'd have to look and see. <laughs> I think at the at this point for the Model S, which is a very expensive car, I believe the superchargers are complimentary. Yeah, for right now, I believe you're right. But the Model 3, which is the vehicle that made uh, news recently by selling a significant number of pre-sales, um, uh, I believe it is not going to be, be complimentary for that. So you talked earlier about the you know the economics of this this trade-off. I guess the other thing that I'm wondering about is if you're doing any traveling, I think of the batteries, and I just don't know how how much battery space is being used up. Uh, how much of the vehicle space? And so do you have any trunk space left? Do you have any storage space left? Or do you have to give that up in order to have the electric vehicle? Well, from a physical point of view, Jeff, the uh, pure space, the Chevy Volt uses, I would say, most of the area underneath the passenger seats in the back. Mm -hmm. And what would typically be like the... Uh, in traditional rear wheel vehicles, what's the uh, what's the space behind the gearbox going to the rear wheels called? That's not the transfer case, is it? Oh, that like hump in the middle seat. There's a name for it. I forget, but so it, the battery makes up a T shape uh, that sits underneath the passenger seats, and goes up towards the front. Uh, near the gear shifter. Um, the Tesla vehicles, which I think is a better example because, again, it is a pure EV, it takes up most of the base of the car. Um, Tesla uses a standard battery dimension, I believe, is it called the 18650? Well, because people will nitpick, I want to make sure. <laughs> The internet's finicky. Yeah, but it's not like we're getting uh, emails every day saying, ooh, you made a mistake on the last podcast. Sometimes we do. Uh, 18, nice. The 18650 battery uh, battery cell. So you have, think about it as a, a, a slightly larger AA. It's bigger than a AA, but it's, it's slightly larger. Think about hundreds of those, almost thousands of those sitting vertically uh, in a climate-controlled box uh, that makes up the bulk of the chassis of the ladder frame of the car. Mm -hmm. So it runs the entire length of the car for the most part. Okay. So I wouldn't say it, it takes up a significant volume in that vehicle. Uh, I think I'm pretty sure the Tesla is actually uh, you can pop the hood and put like a pair like a set of golf clubs in the uh uh the front boot okay 
And doesn't the Tesla have, <clears throat> or some of the electric cars, they have two trunks essentially because you have all that space in the front, uh, under the front hood? Yes, the Tesla does. Yeah. You know, whereas, whereas some electric vehicles, like mine in particular, you are net significantly less space. Like my vehicle is a effectively a hatchback at this point. But you've also got the gasoline engine. Yeah, but even then, I mean, there's – I would say that if you look at the electric – there's two electric motors in the Volt. They take up a non-appreciable amount of space in the front. I think the Tesla is significantly more space efficient. Yeah, so I'm just looking at the the, uh, the curb weight of the Volt is 3,800 pounds. Which is not light for a compact vehicle. But despite, but despite that, the, the electric vehicles are doing okay. Well, depends on what you define as okay. <laughs> well, they're, I mean, they're selling. Tesla's still in business. Yes, Tesla's still in business. And, uh, you know, there are a few websites that track the monthly sales numbers. Tesla is by far and away the, the best-selling electric vehicle in, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, with the Nissan Leaf and Chevy Volt, not far behind. Again, right. if you if you consider the Chevy Volt a electric vehicle uh some people do not right but, uh, yeah i think it's still less than one percent of vehicles sold right now are electric vehicles yeah you know jeff i i just looked it up you know pretty comparable though um the the chevy malibu is still at that three thousand uh pound curb weight as a, a, a non-electric uh, comparable yeah but a malibu is bigger than a bolt yeah not a whole lot bigger, but it's, I mean, it's its not a Crown Vic versus a Geo Metro. Right. So what about all these batteries? Do, do you have to replace them every so often? Do you, how do you, how do you get rid of them? You know, how do you recycle them? Well, it depends on what it is. Uh, most modern uh, electric vehicles are using lithium ion. Uh, historically, you're talking, I mean, the vehicles that were first launched were all lead acid. Uh, nickel metal hydride was kind of the flavor of the year for the 90s or decade. Mm-hmm. The upside for lithium ion is that it's all highly recyclable. Actually, lead acid's highly recyclable. I believe 95% of lead acid batteries are recycled. Um, but when it comes to the lifetime of the battery, you know, I don't know how much good data there is out there. You can look at the warranties. Um, Tesla seems a bit cagey about their warranties. I saw a number of people saying for their Model X that it was eight years unlimited mileage. You know, I haven't mm-hmm. bought one. and I, This is Tesla's most recent, uh, recently released vehicle. Uh, the Chevy Volt is eight years or 100,000 miles, which... If you thought about that, effectively, the battery is the same kind of replacement value as the motor of a vehicle. That seems reasonable. I mean, that's what the typical powertrain is for a uh, gasoline-powered vehicle. Mm-hmm. But we don't also ex- – gasoline-powered vehicles don't have the same degradation rate that batteries do or predictable degradation rate you know it's it's more they catastrophically fail and you're just playing the odds mm-hmm. right whereas the 
the lithium-ion battery in modern EVs is constantly degrading, getting a little bit worse, and you might have a catastrophic failure at some point that caused you to have a full replacement, which would be quite expensive. Right, and, and catastrophic failure is it quits working or it catches on fire. I have only heard of quits working. Okay. Uh, there was actually somebody did an RDIY on Reddit where they repaired their own uh, pluggable Prius battery. Mm-hmm. And it was something as simple as the uh, cell-to-cell contacts had um, corroded and just needed to be cleaned. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when they took it into the dealer, it was going to be you know several thousand dollars to repair and replace. Wow. Because typically a dealer and or a repair shop is not going to try to get to root cause on why a battery isn't working. Yeah. But uh, it's it's also a bit early to really have a good feel about this. I mean, a lot of people have a back napkin feel for how much it's going to cost to replace an engine, you know, like a standard four-cylinder when it goes out, you know, or when, like, when certain elements of a gas motor go out. But I would say you really haven't had several decades worth of electric vehicles out there so that people get a feeling as to what kind of a purchasing decision they're making, you know. You know, after a hundred thousand miles, do I have to replace the battery? When do I have to expect to replace the battery? You know, are the vehicles going to last several battery replacements? Mm-hmm. And is that going to be a thing where you go to the lot and they say, "Well, you know, these Priuses have updated batteries, and so they sell for a little bit more than the ones that don't." Right. But it should right. be worth noting that at this point, the battery still makes up the bulk of the cost of the car. And while that may change at some point when you have Tesla's massive battery factory coming online, I still think, just going back to your question too about, you know, the mass of the car, I would expect the thing that makes the bulk of the mass of the car to also dominate the cost. Mm -hmm. So uh, you mentioned the uh, Tesla's battery factory. I know they're, they're gearing up and they're making a big play to be sort of the dominant you know, market leader in producing batteries so everybody else will buy from them. Are are they close to opening that facility? Uh, I've heard varying reports ranging from they're coming online to piece of, pieces of it are online. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a bit difficult to sort out the Tesla fanboy <laughs> uh, gossip from the press releases uh right so what you're talking about is the gigafactory which is built outside of reno um or being built which when it's complete will be one of the largest buildings on the earth my goodness yeah but it'll be one of those things where it's like you know the a boeing everett facility you know it's it's huge in terms of internal volume but it won't be the tallest building in the world um you won't even think of it as the largest building in the world, but it, it will it will represent a significant portion of the lithium ion production on the planet. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's also kind of the cornerstone for Tesla's business model going forward, whereby they're counting on the economies of scale that they're going to get for centralized production, and also the partnership that they have with Panasonic on this. Uh, 
that they will be able to produce lithium-ion batteries so cheap that everyone's going to be forced to purchase from them even if they are not being used in Tesla vehicles. Right. I don't hear anyone contradicting the math uh, or their assumptions. So I'm going to assume it's going to work. You know, assuming that the market for Tesla vehicles exists the way that people expect it to exist Mm -hmm. in the near future, uh, especially given the pre-sales for the Model uh, 3. But, um, but, but, but wouldn't these batteries, uh, I would think that the properties that make a battery good for use in an electric vehicle would make it good for other applications. Yeah. And I believe that's why Panasonic is particularly interested And the, the, uh, 18650 battery that is being used is predominantly used in laptops. I mean, I believe that's why Tesla chose it is because it was already a commodity item in terms of both its availability and packaging. So, so they're not making one giant battery for the car. They're making a whole bunch of little batteries that could fit in a laptop and stacking them into the vehicle. Yes, exactly. Okay. Doesn't that make it for an awful lot? I guess you, either your connections are internal or external, but sooner or later you got to have lots of connections to get to all the cells, right? Well, that's a, that's a big point. Um, I mean, with vehicles, the primary means that you whereby you kill components in it is thermal cycling. Mm-hmm. And mechanical connections are what are killed in thermal cycling. So, uh, yeah, uh, I believe the battery connections, uh, the cell to cell battery connections, are made with stir welding. At least the last time I checked, they were. Some of the mm-hmm. people who are making retrofitted electrical vehicle systems were noting that. Um, but, uh, I wouldn't expect those to consistently fail. I think that's a fairly repeatable process and uh, some, uh, something that it benefits greatly from um, manufacturing, manufacturing statistical control as opposed to if you actually had to make those individual connections by you know, crimped wires, et cetera. Sure. And with the trend for... I, so I'm taking two trends. One is we have the uh, the self-driving cars coming online, and we have uh, the ride-sharing Ubers and Lyfts of the world. D- does the electric vehicle play any role in there? Does does it make any difference, or the Ubers and Lyfts don't care what kind of vehicle you're in, and the self-driving cars don't care whether it's electric vehicle or a, a, a internal combustion engine? I don't think they care. I think uh, several of the prototype electric vehicles or uh, self-driving, uh, self-driving cars are electric vehicles. I believe Google's self-driving car is an electric vehicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, not their initial prototypes because I think they took a bunch of Priuses and other vehicles and retrofitted their LiDAR and uh, software setups onto that. Um, they're not related but I think they end up being related when they go to market because a lot of the electric vehicle manufacturers, particularly Tesla, you know, are marketing themselves as high-end, high-tech cars. So Tesla's autopilot system is icing on the cake for their electric drivetrain. You know, it isn't required. Arguably, I never thought it made any business sense for them. But at the same time, you know, it's them demonstrating that they're cutting cutting edge. 
Right. I actually really dislike that feature, to be honest. Why? I think it's tough enough to try to do a technology push mm-hmm. where you're educating the consumer on the benefits uh, both strategically and, you know, buy an electric vehicle. It maybe doesn't make a whole lot of economic sense. You still want to buy one, right? I've got to convince you to make a huge household purchasing decision for something that doesn't necessarily compete with gasoline vehicles. And to do a simultaneous technology push for their autopilot system seems a bit much for me, but I'm a bit of a uh, scary cat when it comes to that kind of stuff. <laughs> Convince people to buy the awesome electric vehicle first and then worry about self-driving cars. I should say that we're also in a time period where there have been a couple high-profile De- uh, you know, either crashes or deaths associated with the autopilot system. Fairly recently. Yeah. Which is my big fear that, you know, those initial deaths will prematurely kill both self-driving cars and maybe the companies that sell them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's no doubt that the, you know, the electric vehicle is much more here and now than the self-driving cars there's there's definitely oh, clearly. some yeah. some details that need to be worked out on the the navigation that's a that's a whole other kettle of fish that they've got to uh figure out well and uh, you know to tesla's credit at least a couple of these high profile cl- crashes appear to be people being stupid <laughs> yes but people tend to be that way sometimes exactly i i, I mean I guess to Tesla's credit and detriment, some of them appear to be the driver's fault in the media. It won't matter. Right. You know, which is sad, but, uh, interesting. Well, so I'm, I'm kind of curious, uh, from the road design standpoint, Adam, does, do road designers care that, we have electric vehicles. Do they make any accommodations for it, or is it just like any other any other vehicle on the road? Yeah, at, at this point, they're like any other vehicle on the road. Um, they, you know, a lot of the individual vehicle characteristics get pretty distilled out. You know, one area of concern though um, is less technical and more um, financial. Of mm-hmm. um, well. Most uh, highway projects are funded through the gas tax. Oh, hadn't thought of that one. <laughs> yeah, um, that, that's the overwhelming majority of uh, of where the funding comes from. And in, in my state, at least, constitutionally, all gas tax has to go to um, roads or almost entirely to, well, it has to go to roads transportation purposes, mm-hmm. um, whether that be the highway patrol the Department of Transportation or um, uh, Department of Natural Resources for park roads. Um, But electric vehicles do damage to the road just like every other car, but aren't buying gasoline. Some of us are, but... Uh, But not on the same scale of um, as a comparable uh, gasoline vehicle would. And so how, how do we make sure to get the fair share, so to speak, of funding from the electric vehicle operators. That sounds like socialism. 
uh, it sort of is. <laughs> I, now, I, I seem to recall that, that uh, I think it was Oregon that was using some sort of, you know, you have the, the, the passes that you can pay tolls with automatically, mm-hmm. and they, but they can also, of course, track your passing through down a road. Uh, but they were basically going to a per mile driven type uh, tax. I can't remember whether it was mm-hmm. internally they had a GPS or they had some sort of external uh, tracking system. But the idea was that because of this, uh, they were starting to investigate uh, taxing the number of miles driven as opposed to uh, taxing the fuel. Yep. And there's been some discussions about um, even if it's just odometer, um, you pay by miles on the odometer every year when you get your plates. Um so th- there's lots of potential solutions, um, which this gets to be more a legislative issue than an engineering issue. I think technically, you know, GPS or something even simpler like an odometer um, is not a very difficult technical challenge, but it is a, a pretty substantial political challenge that is going to need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. I should also point out, though, that, you know, there's a lot of incentives for electric vehicles and the um, along the lines of alternative energies, there's also a lot of incentives for them. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's substantial tax incentives for um, for buying an electric vehicle. You could consider this, a, a, you know, a usage incentive at this point. At this point, yes. And I think you that's the, the overall current view, especially with the, the percentage of the fleet that's currently electric. Exactly. I should also point out, too, that plenty of people have posited that the interest in electric vehicles is, particularly by U.S. manufacturers, is driven primarily by the federal uh, emission standards that I believe the federal emission standards allow them to consider the entire fleet or not emission standards. I got that wrong. Uh, mileage standards. Mm. So they consider the entire fleet and there are requirements that, you know, you must get X miles per gallon and your vehicle sold. Most U S trucks, pickup trucks do not get anywhere close to that. And GM and Ford and Chrysler are able to offset their low mileage vehicles by selling effectively zero mileage vehicles, you know, or or infinite mile vehicles, depending upon how you consider it. That a Chevy Volt, while not a huge portion of their business, for GM, it allows them to have lower mileage on their trucks and their uh, larger passenger vehicles. Sure. Okay. Well, I, I guess that's the case. Do do you have any idea about uh, uh, electric vehicle sales outside of the U.S.? I do not. Okay. I do, but I I'm pretty sure the U.S. represents the bulk of uh, Tesla sales. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that makes sense. The U.S. also has a very different um, relationship with their vehicles than many other places in the world, um, especially. Um, as you get into flyover country, so to speak. Yes. Um, where, um, at least most of us live on this podcast. Um, not necessarily our listeners where basically everybody has a car and that's not the norm in other parts of the world. Yep. Yep. Very attached. 
have to have the car to go through the, uh, so you can sit in the car as you go through the drive through to pick up your fast food. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. And, and there are definitely other places that have uh, a great attachment to their cars. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, um, it's, it, it's a different, different cultural relationship with their vehicles. Right. So I, as we're talking about this, I, I had the thought you, uh, the mention was made of alternative fuels and, and, uh, uh, energy production. I'm thinking, well, most people probably wouldn't go this deep into it, but I'm thinking that Brian may have given this thought, uh, and that is setting up solar panels so that basically you're paying nothing for the electrical power required to charge your vehicle. Isn't the nat- that the natural extension of somebody getting an electric vehicle? Well, I mean, are we talking the literal case or the figurative case? I don't know. Give me what your thought is. I don't. Well, it, I mean, there is news recently as of the recording of this podcast that Tesla has attempted to buy Solar City because they explicitly see that as the future of their industry. Wow. Okay. Practically and from an engineering point of view, which is, I think, what our listeners are interested in, it's a bit of a stretch. Okay. Solar production, I mean, uh, presumably Solar City, which is interested in, and, and I don't really want to, you know, pick apart or even evaluate their their investment sure. and, uh, you know, the practicality of what Elon Musk has put forward as his vision for that particular purchase or offer mm-hmm. um solar solar panels produce all of their power in a in a time period where most people are going to be at work they're going to be away from their residential power production system mm-hmm. so that means you'd have to have an additional battery system in order to charge your um uh, your car because you'd want to collect all the power when you're not at home and you're not, you know, you're not utilizing uh, all of the energy assets at your house, which is also when peak solar power production would be. Right. But isn't that good for Tesla if they're selling batteries? Well, of course, but it depends. That also predicates that you're not only going to buy the solar panels, which are again, a bit of a dubious payback, Exercise. I mean, with mm-hmm. with with federal and state tax incentive, yes, it, it definitely does pay off to buy those things. But as soon as you add the Tesla Powerwall on top of that, and the regulators, uh, the power regulators, in order to make that work, I doubt it's going to pay off. At least given today's pricing and today's technology. Mm-hmm. So if if we instead of going off to uh to work the day if we all work from home uh then that would be perfect because then the uh the car would be in the garage and we'd be we'd be uh, charging the batteries in the garage but i guess if we were working from home we wouldn't need the car in the first place would we yeah pick up your kids from soccer practice <laughs> right <laughs> right so that seems to be the uh, the engineering problem, right? The the car is never where where you need it to be at the right time to uh, to accommodate the uh, uh, the sunlight. Pretty much, the 
misalignment of peak power production in solar versus actually being at home to do it. I don't know that it makes a whole lot of sense to do that given today's technology. Mm-hmm. Um, you also get to the historical conspiracy theories slash driven by fact that city lighting, street lighting was driven by the fact that you need to have base load uh, consumption at night. I would argue that cars represent the perfect base load uh, energy sink at night. And so at that point, I don't know that the combination of solar and electric vehicles is necessarily a huge winner. Um, you guys know what I what I mean by base load at night? You have the electricity plants that want to run 24-7. You don't want to bring mm-hmm. them up and shut them back down. So you need someplace for that uh, power to go during the evening hours. Exactly. And the historical conspiracy theory, and we can talk about this during a grid episode, is that street lighting was invented, you know, modern street lighting was invented to basically find somebody that would pay for <laughs> electricity usage at night. You know, we got to, okay. we got to put this electricity somewhere. So let's convince all the cities that they'll, they need electric lights and they need the buildings to be lit so that, you know, somebody will actually pay for the generation assets. Well, at night cars actually represent the perfect constant load that would be used for base loads. That would be used for base load generation assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially as most cities switch all of their lighting over to LED, you know, another high efficiency solutions and that load disappears. Right. I think I also put in the uh, uh, notes for this episode that it's, it's interesting to look at electric vehicles from an emissions point of view. Sure. So I, a lot of people will look at electric vehicles as a low emission solution to uh, climate change. And, you know, like all good engineering problems, it depends mm-hmm. as, you know, it depends on where you are in the country, in the U S or anywhere else in the world. Uh, because, you know, the carbon emissions per kilowatt hour vary dramatically based on what you use to generate that kilowatt hour. Right. The U.S. government has a good app that actually shows you based on what state you're in and the generation assets available, what your equivalent uh, carbon emission is per mile driven or per kilowatt hour. You know, if you're in a state like California, which has relatively clean energy, and I picked California because I assumed it had relatively clean energy and it seemed to play out. Um, you know, it's it's significantly lower carbon emissions per mile driven. Whereas if you're in a state like West Virginia, which derives most of its power from coal, mm-hmm. your carbon emissions are actually roughly equivalent. You're not significantly reducing your carbon footprint by driving electric vehicles. So the trade-off is that that you, despite, I I guess, the inefficiencies that I would guess come from running an internal combustion engine, you've got, you know, you've got a fairly small engine in comparison to big uh, electrical plants, and you've got all the emissions, but you're saying that when you're burning coal to generate the electricity, it's a a wash. Yes. Uh, To put numbers to the actual statement, 
according to uh, the Department of Energy, if like, and I gave those two states as an example, and there's you know all sorts of middle ground between them, and I don't even know that California is the best. Uh, if you drive an electric vehicle in California, you're emitting roughly uh, 2,700 pounds of CO2, whereas in West Virginia, you're almost at 10,000 pounds of CO2. Well, wow. which is almost equivalent to a gasoline, your standard gasoline uh, powered vehicle. Right. And that, that amount is what per year, per month, per mile, I believe per year, per year. Okay. So check the site, but I believe it's per year. Okay. Well, uh, 10,000 versus 2,700. That's a, what, yeah. a factor of four. That's a pretty even normalized values. That's yeah. Annual emissions per vehicle. Okay. That's pretty good. So, so what's your? How long have you owned your Volt? Uh, about two and a half years. Okay, and and your opinion at this point? Uh, largely positive. My gripes would only come down to things that are unrelated to it being an electric or hybrid electric vehicle. So more just it's a vehicle. It's a vehicle and. Everyone's got things they can complain about. <laughs> right. You know, like, like my my navigation and sound system will basically look like it's appearing to do a software update and disappear for 15 minutes. Yeah, the radio will disappear for 15 minutes and, you know, the entire center, center console. So you better hope you set the air conditioning to what you want it at. Ooh, this is why you're driving? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, but I like it. Uh, something else I should point out. It's in the notes, and it's of uh, it's kind of important. Uh, battery range dropped significantly in the winter for the Chevy Volt. I tried to find equivalent data for the Tesla, and it appears it does not suffer from the same issues. Hmm. But uh, it still should. Question mark. Right. Um. <laughs> It gets down to battery chemistry from what I've read. So my range in the winter gets cut almost in half, and it's unrelated to whether you use the heaters or not. I believe it just gets down to the chemical efficiencies of the battery at extremely low temperatures that we would see in Minnesota. Yep. And so what what are those temp? At what point do you start noticing it? Is it below freezing? Uh, below, uh, once you get in the 30s, you start to see it. But you, I would say you don't see range cut in half until you see about 20 degrees or so. Okay. So uh, see below, uh, zero, a, below zero for the rest of the world. There's a rule of thumb. Yeah. Good point. Um, there's a rule of thumb for hybrid electric vehicles that you lose 10 miles of range for every 10 degrees Fahrenheit that you lose. Okay. Um, now, I've seen claims by Tesla that they don't suffer from the same issue because they climate control their batteries. That's got to consume electricity. I don't or consume power in the battery. I don't know how much. I don't know that GM doesn't do the same thing, but it seems like a notable difference. I haven't seen a good comparison between the two. Okay, well, if you're if you are able to uh, to drive an electric vehicle in uh, in Minnesota, where it does get quite cold in the winter, and despite this, mm -hmm. uh, you're still happy with a vehicle, I I guess it must be doing what you need it to do. Exactly. 
All right. We'll tell you what we, uh, uh, we should probably, uh, think about wrapping up this episode. I, I certainly appreciate Brian, your willingness to, uh, uh, to share the information and experiences you've had uh, driving an electric vehicle. Absolutely. All right. Well, until next time, gentlemen. Thanks, Brian. Good night. All right. Good night, guys. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson.